Hi, everybody. Hello. My name is Luke Thomas. It is 11-11. Uh, it is the 11th of November of 2021. This is episode 94 of my live chat, of the Luke Thomas live chat. Thank you so much for watching and or listening, depending on where you're getting this. I greatly appreciate it. First things first, as always, thumbs up on the video if you're watching. Subscribe if you are new or if you've been here for a while and you would like to give back. Okay, house rules. I'll go for about an hour on the free questions that you guys answered. I always put up a post on the community tab here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas, and you guys fill it up with questions. I will go for an hour on those. I believe the super chat is back on after being off for a couple of episodes since they were all epic fuck-ups, um, but it's back on today. So then at the end of the hour, I will get to the paid questions from the super chat. Certainly you are under no obligation, but if you'd like to, there you have it. Okay, um, today we will get to any leftovers from UFC 268. We'll look ahead uh, to the weekend and really anything else going on that you guys want to get to here. As you guys know, now that the chat is back on my personal channel, we can sort of live it up with the topics a little bit. All right, without further ado, let's get this party started. All right. There we are. I'm back home. I'm happy to be back home after being on the road for um, forever. I see one question in the chat that says, Luke, what kind of microphone? This is the Shure, which is spelled S-H-U-R-E. The Shure, I think SM7B. I believe that's what it is. People often complain that they can't hear on this, and not without good reason. This is a great microphone because... You know, you can still pick up my daughter when she wakes up, which, by the way, will happen any minute now. Um, but it also is good about, uh, like, you need a, something else to give it some gain before you plug it into your your final um, mixer. If your mixer can't handle that kind of a thing. so. Uh, but it's good because it weeds out a lot of extra extraneous noise. All right. Thank you for watching. Um, housekeeping notes beyond what I already just said. Oh, folks were asking last week about um, Alex Pereira, Pereira, the guy who came over from Glory and like how good was he? And I didn't have a good answer for you. I actually looked into it. I'm waiting on the answers from a couple of people and then I will share that with you either in a video or back here on this live chat. Because I do think even though that's a little bit two weeks old by the time I get around to it, the information will still be quite valuable. Also, tomorrow... I want to do main event previews on Friday, but everyone does main event previews, so it's like, I don't know how much value I'm really adding. Instead, tomorrow, I will have a video out. I don't know if it'll be the morning. It depends if I can record it tonight or not, but either way, I'll record it at a bare minimum at the latest first thing in the uh, the morning after uh, I get up with my daughter. So it should be out around MK time on what counts as a takedown statistically. So remember this big debate where everyone's like, oh, Kamaru got taken down by Colby, and then all, everyone who had a wrestling background was like, including Daniel Cormier, UFC commentator, of course, former you know, two-weight world champion, former captain of the men's freestyle Olympic team. He was saying, no doubt about it, that's two. That's, a, that's two points. That's a takedown. And then uh, Fightmetric, which is actually, people don't know this, it's known as 3027. That's actually the name of the company. It's not Fightmetric anymore. It's 3027. Uh, 3027 said, no, it's not a takedown. And folks were like, well, what the fuck? How can that be? Um, I actually have a great answer for you. I looked into it, and um, I don't think that what I'm going to share will convince everybody, but I bet that the vast majority of complaints will go away. So that will be out tomorrow. 
Okay. Let me... Oh, and last, but certainly not least, happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day to all the vets out there. I hope you are doing well. I appreciate you watching and or listening if you're getting this after the fact. Yes, this will get posted um, on so on um, the audio distribution channels. So, But happy Veterans Day to all the vets out there, and I hope you're doing well. I retweeted a couple of articles today if you want to check out my feed, at L. Thomas News on Twitter. And um, vi- veterans are leading the way in uh, psychedelic therapies. And I think folks should take that very seriously. A lot of folks have sort of treated psychedelics as something of a burnout drug, but it turns out there could be extraordinary value in um, trauma therapy. And vets are leading the way in that. And then there was another article about vets who did have problems in their military service. Uh, one woman was sexually assaulted. Other ones were sort of left for with no help after the fact. And it's all these vets who took it upon themselves to start these other veteran organizations and what they've done. And they've listed a few. In fact, one of them is the husband of a New York Times writer that I follow. I follow her. She covers war for the New York Times. Uh, Her husband is a leading vet advocate um, for those who struggle with suicide. So check out both of those articles if you are either a vet or not, or you're interested in learning more about the lives of vets. They're not all struggle and despair, but to the extent that that is part of the situation, it's worth not hiding from. And um, those are two great articles, I think, irrespective of your political affiliations or backgrounds. People can get behind veterans taking care of veterans or those who had experienced profound trauma getting some help. Okay, it is 3.09. I'll go to about 4.09 or so. And then we will get to the paid questions. Jesus. What the fuck? Okay, hold on. Let me... To streamline everything, I have one uh, set of... One keyboard and one mouse for three different computer systems on my desk. So sometimes uh, it can get a little bit confusing up there. All right. Let's go to your questions. All right, let's get to it. First thing, oh, let me turn off the uh, subscribe button for those watching. There we go. Okay, let's get to it. First question, how much will Leon, in this case, Leon Edwards, be set back if he doesn't accept a replacement for his fight? Probably substantially, but I think he's going to accept a replacement for his fight. I mean, he... By the tenor of his, I mean, he really is in a position where I understand he might be like, oh, I don't need to because, you know, Kamaru, I'll see you next, right? Which is something that he wrote. Okay, but what would you expect him to write? Like, okay, I'm, you know, I'll take on anyone. Like, I don't want a title shot. Like, you know, Kamaru just fought and he lost an opponent. It would only be natural to kind of advocate for a title shot. But the UFC understands at this point that, like, Leon Edwards is quite good. Meritocratically, he probably already is there in place for a title shot, but there might be some issues with his visibility here stateside by by virtue of his fights being not always prominently featured and his fight style I think candidly being sometimes I won't call it boring but not not conducive to maximum fan appeal at all times again which is not hardly a criticism but it's just a reflection of reality um so you know he said what he said but he also said he knew that Masvidal or in his mind anyway he believed that Masvidal was not going to ever fight him so on some level, he was expecting that to not happen. He's just not in a position to not take one. Um, he might delay 
when he gets back in there could be a little bit dicey. But dude, like, what leverage does he have to force a title shot into the hands of the Ultimate Fighting Championship? I think that they want to, I, I, and I mean this legitimately, I think in general they would like to do right by him if the opportunity presented itself, even though he might have to fight Hamzat Chemaev, given how things have gone. And I know there is some speculation that, like, Colby's like, yeah, Masvidal should drop out of his fight with Edwards and fight me instead. Now, by virtue of Masvidal withdrawing from his fight with Leon Edwards, everyone's like, oh, how convenient did the UFC orchestrate this? Who knows? I mean, would it surprise me? No. Am I suggesting that it's true? I, I mostly don't. <laughs> of all the things to complain about in the fight game, it's like, this is fairly, I won't say... I understand the complaints about it. I guess I'm just so numb to it that, like, of all the things to complain about, that's not super high on my list. But I understand that that's not... I'm not advocating that everyone adopt my... Uh, what do I want to say? Adopt my jaundiced worldview. So, he, how can he force the UFC to just give him one? Like, by what mechanism what lever can he pull is the way I always like to imagine it what's on the chessboard there that offers that up um, I just don't see it if they never gave him one what business consequences would they face and the answer is not much probably a few cycles of some bad publicity within MMA media that might never even make it to larger general sports audiences um, Edwards would continue fighting or potentially, you know, move on to another organization. Like, what what would he do that would force their hand? There's no leverage. So he might, He. I'm not saying he won't wait. He might, but he, he's not going to luck this way into it. I mean, plus, Kamaru just fought five rounds and he wants some time off. Like, there's no leverage for it. There's a lane now to take opponents. There's... If he doesn't accept it, he will do so at his own peril. That doesn't mean he has to take any old fight that they offer, but that he needs to take a fight, given the the weight of the circumstances, is incontestable. Uh, unless UFC just says, fuck it, we'll give you a title shot, which in which case, no, he doesn't. But that wouldn't be a holdout, right? That would be just going along with their plans. Uh, okay, given, the bantam, given that bantamweight, excuse me, is probably the most advanced division in the world, do you think Piotr Jan... Within a pound for pound number one after some title defenses, let's say three to five. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I don't know if I can guarantee that. There's a lot of very talented fighters competing for that spot, but um, yeah, he might. Especially if he turns into something of a commercial attraction, which the argument should be divorced from that. It should be that, oh, it will, the, that, that he does or does not have commercial appeal is irrelevant. And I would agree that that is the way that it should be. But the way it often goes, and I've seen it this way a little bit, is that it's not that you, if you're ranking, it's not that you weigh any commercial appeal as relevant. Rather, it is that once you see someone get commercial appeal, the conversation around them begins to change. Right, it's hard to have a conversation about the pound for pound best in your sport if no one knows who they are. Which, uh, you know, it, it's that's not fair to say that no one knew who Demetrius Johnson was, but that he was not a crossover star is largely true. And so it made the case about um, putting him one not difficult for insiders, but it's just a hard sell to the general public. Even that's not what the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes when they turn that corner. 
and they get that boost commercially, however it may happen, the examination of how great they are just hits overdrive and they get a they get a push. You know, and sometimes they it's the it's a long overdue push. Like I'm not even saying it's an artificial push. Sometimes it's exactly the push that they needed. So it's not that you take that into account if you're ranking, it's that it acts as a catalyst for somebody getting more of their due. And it's unfortunate that it tends to work that way. Um but it does. And by the way, that pressure then reverts on itself because you might be like, well, insiders should be immune from this pressure, which is true. But then when something commercial happens and it blows up and it's for winning, not like for, you know, moral victories or something, it's for being like a legit badass and, uh, and you know, gathering an audience that way. I do think that over time that washes over the people who rank and, and it, and it um, puts them, you know, in greater contention for either the spots they deserve, maybe sometimes a little bit more, but... You get the idea. The commercial appeal does have an effect on how fighters get ranked one way or the other. I firmly believe that. By the way, I'm going to try something here. Um, Celsius? Have you guys had this? One of my producers at Showtime swears by this stuff. Uh, how much caffeine does this have? Because it's, eh, it's 3 o'clock. I can have some caffeine. You might be like, oh my God, Luke's looking at the clock for caffeine. Hey, bitch. <laughs> when you get to my age, you got to measure that shit. Otherwise, you're going to be at three in the morning, eye, uh, eyes wide awake, staring at the ceiling, wondering why the fuck you can't go to sleep. Uh, you ever seen that, that that Onion article? Like, pathetic 40-year-old man succumbs to weight of, um, like, second cup of coffee in, in a day keeping him awake or some shit? All right, let's try this. That's not bad. I mean, I wouldn't drink it warm, <laughs> right? That's okay. As far as like energy drinks go, you know, when it's like bang, fucking cotton candy, uh, unicorn flavor, you're like, Jesus, man, what happened to just like this like what happened to just watermelon but okay all right not bad i'm not one i like some i don't like seltzers too much you guys like those things like lacroix and it's always like i don't understand the point of drinking that it's like let's put carbonation in my water and then add the not even flavor the vague whiff of a flavor so that it tastes like someone just diluted what I was trying to drink. Like I don't, I don't quite get that. This doesn't suffer from that exactly. So there you go. All right. Who is a fighter that would be in the goat conversation if longevity of greatness was not the deciding factor that it is? That's an interesting conversation. Basically, who was the greatest over a two to three fight span that is overlooked? <sighs> Man, that's a tough one. Um, Anderson, so I mean, all the ones who were already there had some pretty epic runs, um, and especially BJ Penn. BJ Penn had in a two or three fight stretch, he had some, he had some decent scalps. Saint Pierre, um, Silva when he went to and fought went up a weight class, and he went and went up a weight class in quick succession, a relatively quick succession, like Anderson Silva did. That's pretty good. Obviously, Habib's going to have a good two to three fight stretch. I mean, when he just smoked Poirier and Gaethje, I mean, he had no trouble with either of them, you know, which is like, what? You know, (laughs) 
I don't think we think. I mean, I was just thinking about that the other day. It's like, dude, he made beating them look like it was fucking child's play. And Dustin Poirier is a legitimate badass. And Justin Gaethje, I mean, need I say more? And Habib just worked them over. Dude, he had... Go back and watch that Gaethje fight. It is shocking to watch him. He took down Justin Gaethje in a way that, like... You understand Justin Gaethje as more or less not being able to be taken down. And Khabib just like, oh, let me reintroduce you to him. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, so, really, any of those. I'm trying to think of somebody who had... There's definitely guys who've had great stretches who aren't necessarily in the GOAT conversation. Um, who had some decent runs. Um... You know, Michael Bisping had a good two to three fight run there as well. Like guys who are, you know, who were champions, maybe not ranked like among the John Joneses and stuff like that. But um, I'd have to think more about it. It's a great question. But, you know, just for the time being, I'm not, I'm not so good at the recall on these kinds of things. But I would say just as like an answer, Habib doing what he did to Poirier and fucking Gaethje is like, I don't even know what the word, I don't know. I, I, I don't know fully how to describe that. It's like these guys are all, there's all this parody and then there's this freak who comes around is like. All right, Luke, if Poirier wins the lightweight title next month, how likely is it that he retires? I don't know if he retires right then, but probably pretty close. Probably pretty close. Would the Gaethje rematch interest him enough? He might do it just to like try and defend it. And if he gets through that, would a Makachev fight appeal to him also? Perhaps. I mean, I would have to speak to him to really get a, to get a better answer. That's a, that's a harder one to to just speculate. My, my strong inclination, based on some conversations I've had, is that uh, a retirement with the belt, I would not... I've not heard that like anything like that is in the work. I mean, who the hell knows? But that would seem a little bit off. But not far... Dude, I cannot tell you how many... Man I don't speak to many managers. Hardly ever. But when I do... And I talk about like their bigger, their better and bigger assets... Every conversation is the same. Every one of them. Some guy they've got finally making money, champion, you know, whatever, senior in their career, whatever it may be. Once they hit that level, dude, they all, that the clock starts ticking. It starts ticking. The sands in the hourglass start falling. Once they hit a level where they start making money, they want to have a set amount of money they either earn or amount of fights. Like there's some kind of fixed property there and then when they hit that they want to get the fuck out now how much they stick to that do they ever reach their goals there's a lot of wiggle room in what they say they want to do and what they end up actually doing but I have to tell you every conversation is the same and it doesn't matter if we're talking about someone who's in his mid to late 30s or someone who's in his mid to late 20s they want to get in they want to get to a level where they can make money they want to do that for a short measurable amount of time and then they want to get the fuck out of the game it is it is it is in complete contrast although there I guess there's some overlap but in let's say stark contrast to what boxers want to do which is they want to get to that level and then they want to ride that as long as they can um openly they'll say that you know Darrell is like well I'll retire if I don't get Canelo I mean we'll see if he actually does that but it's it's crazy it's crazy that the sport is so hard that the most gifted ones are like, dude, fuck this. I'm getting out of town. It's crazy. I, I had a conversation recently with somebody um, who reps uh, some champions. 
and you just wouldn't believe like how early the exit is they're looking for. It's crazy. Will the UFC give favorable matchups to Alex Pereira to try and hotshot him to a title shot with Izzy? Basically, avoid Brunson, Hermanson, Vittori. They might dodge it a little bit. That might be true. But he will eventually have to fight someone who can wrestle at that level. Whether it is Vittori or Hermanson or Brunson. And they have different wrestling levels, but you would all agree those are some top quality middleweights, right? Um, he, he won't have to go through all of them. It'll probably have to go through at least one of them. And if he wins that, then then that's probably about it. Izzy was measuring it at about four fights. Could be three. Could be five. Doubt it's five. I'd say three or four. Three or four is about what I'm expecting from that. And, uh, damn, that thing is making my head spin. Good Lord. Yeah, there must be a fuck ton of caffeine in it. Or maybe not. I don't know. Is there? I would imagine that there is. Um, so yeah, they're gonna do that. I would. They, they that was the issue with Connor. Con, the Connor situation was like you know I remember when they made the fight with Dennis Steven, and they're like oh this is a setup, and it was it was a I mean remember that thing that was the fight that was in Boston if memory serves, and you know Jose Aldo was sitting octagon side, so the whole idea is let's put this guy in a major market. Let's put him on television. Let's let the world enjoy the McGregor experience, the whole nine yards, and let's get him an opponent he can beat and like like look really good doing it. Everyone's like, oh, that's bullshit, right? Yes and yes and no, yes and no. He still had to fight Mendez on. Uh, granted, it was the last minute notice, but you know his knees were fucked up and he still took that fight. So that to me is that tells you what he was, uh, you know, what he was about it. And the issue is, once you get to that level, there's really no going back. You know, like you can dodge a couple on the way up. It's possible. It's possible. But once you get to that level, you it's over for you if you can't actually do it. You you can you can peak and then you can drop off, or you can maintain in the way that Israel Adesanya has. But you can no longer be denied. You know, if the if their wrestler is up next, that's just what you have to do. Your peers at that point. It doesn't make sense. Oh, you're ranked number two. Let's have you fight the you know, the 14th best. It, that doesn't work that way. Once you hit that peer group, you can't. There's no longer hiding. So they can. The answer is they can, if they want, they can carefully matchmake him on the way up in a, a little bit. But that that there is a limit to that. Uh, am I the only one putting two and two together, or is it pretty easy to tell that Islam Makachev would be too much for Oliveira on the ground? We've seen Oliveira get controlled and grounded pounded by Paul Felder in back-to-back rounds, while Islam clearly has Habib-level top control submission game and phenomenal submission defense in addition to being very good in grounded pound. I just can't see how Oliveira would have done well at all on the ground versus Habib. Now, Habib, yeah, I don't know. Or currently versus Islam. Am I crazy or can you see this as well? I can certainly see that. I don't think that's a terrible argument. At the same time, um, it is possible he could get hurt. Obviously on the ground, which which would change the equation with anybody who has any grappling ability. Not merely Oliveira. Also, Oliveira um, has been inconsistent. I think that's fair. The Fel- I mean, Felder went right into his guard and demolished him. Felder's ground and pound in that fight was very good. I've not seen 
and, and and by the way, like uniquely savage with the elbows, right? He was splitting the guard right down the middle. I've seen good ground and pound from Islam. I've not quite seen that. Uh, I'm not saying he can't do it or anything. I'm just saying there's a little bit of a fingerprint on the style of ground and pound from each guy, and some of the things you're describing aren't quite exactly what Islam does, which, again, doesn't necessarily mean it's out of the realm of possibility, but not exactly what he has historically shown as a particular technique. Um, he does throw elbows, but I'm saying with that particular kind of way that Paul Felder was doing it. And, um, you know, while the inconsistency often works against Oliveira, if he's on, man, he's on. And he can wrestle quite well with his legs. And, and um, I think you, I think that the situation you're describing is probably the likeliest of all scenarios. But I would just always caution, and especially in this case when you've got somebody who is inconsistent, but when they're on, extremely talented and formidable... You know, people treat a disparity as the same thing as an inevitability. And you can't quite do that. You can have a disparity in talent, uh, and you should wisely and rationally conclude that that disparity probably means good things for the person who is up here and the bad things who are for the person who's down there, for the person who has the greater ability. At the same time, disparity is not... Um, it's not enough of a condition to guarantee that that will win the day. So just be careful in your assessment that like, is it, these are all just about probabilities, but I, I would argue that Oliveira's ability to wrestle with his legs and his, I would, you know, I wouldn't say newfound confidence, but there is, he is much calmer under fire than he used to be. Um, he is much calmer in scrambles. He is uh, overall much improved. He has the ability to hurt Makachev on the feet I think your general read is probably correct, but just be careful about overconfidently um, leaning into it. If Nate, I'm assuming you mean Diaz, were to sign with Showtime slash Bellator for one boxing match and one MMA fight, what would you want for each? I'd imagine a Paul brother for boxing, of course. You know, what else could you possibly do there? Uh, although, you know, Nate taking a risk fighting a guy who's not a fighter if he loses, which you might be like, oh, Nate would never lose. I'm like, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how good he would do. Um, I can't think of anyone other than MVP on the fighting side. Um, you could do a Henson, Henderson rematch, Benson, which I don't think there's a big appetite for, but you could do that. Um, MVP is an interesting one you could do. Yes, for sure. Um you could potentially, this would be interesting, you could do an AJ McKee versus Nate Diaz. I don't know if you would want to, but McKee could go to 155 and Nate could go back there if he needed to. So they could meet at 155. That'd be an interesting fight, right? AJ McKee versus Nate Diaz. I mean, AJ McKee, I think, would probably win and turn into a fucking star with that kind of performance. So I don't know if you would want to risk that. Yeah, MVP's probably a good answer. I was thinking like Koreshkov, but there's not enough... Juice behind that. Maybe they could do Patricio if you want to bump up to 155. Kind of a scenario, but uh, I don't know. I don't know how that would work exactly. Um, but if he boxed, it would either be on pay-per-view or, or I would imagine, big CBS. I mean, I'm sure Showtime would love to have that, but I would imagine if Showtime had Nate Diaz, they're going to either charge for it or bump it to big CBS. Like, there's no way that would just air on regular Showtime. I, don't, I mean, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Uh, would you put your daughter in anti, in, into any martial arts training? Maybe. Maybe. 
I haven't given it too, too much thought. Right now, I'm just trying to figure out what she likes and, you know, try and build on that and see where it goes. But, uh, I mean, I don't have any direct plans, but I certainly don't have any objections. I mean, yeah, I think eventually I probably will make it mandatory or something close to mandatory, but not right now. All right, so let's say that Hamzat beats one of either Luke Edwards, or Wonderboy and then beat Usman. Could he become almost as big as Habib right now? His trajectory is straight out of a movie. Yeah, he could. If he did that, if he beat a number one contender, which you know, I realize that Wonderboy wouldn't necessarily be them, but if let's say he goes in there and Hamzats him, right? And then he beat Usman, you know, remember he can fight 185 maybe easier than he can make 170. Well, certainly he could fight at 185 easier than he can make 170. But I mean, how good is he as a in, like against the very best of 185 versus the very best of 170? But at that point, you know, if it's easier for you to make 185, you can win at 185, and you already beat the champion in two fights. You beat the number one contender and the champion in two fights. Yeah, dude, I would imagine in the Muslim world he would grow to be an ex- uh, like Habib. Uh, you know, I, I'm not ex- I'm not exactly sure about this, but I'm told. That Habib's level of stardom in inside Muslim sports is, you know, so you know whatever that sort of means. The various communities they're in, it's like on par with like Mo Salah out of Liverpool, um, which, if true, is you know an extraordinary feat, and probably is. And so, if you can get, you know, if you can do what Shemaya is doing, obviously he can be a star, you know, far beyond that that world, but. Even then, he might be a fucking monster star in that one too, and that's no small—that's no small community, man. We talked about this on MK. Does Islam get the next title shot after Dustin versus Oliveira? I guess not. I guess he has to beat someone in that top five, like firmly in that top five. Maybe Hooker was around that space. I'm not sure exactly, but he's got to fight someone who either held a title or contended for it or is in that rarefied space because otherwise Gaethje has I think just too much momentum as both an exciting fighter with a phenomenal record and he has beaten guys like that Luke Frankie Edgar came back from hip replacement surgery how was he allowed to fight as a medical professional I was stunned that he was fighting with a replaced hip which are prone for dislocations Ask the elderly folks. I don't know shit about it, but I guess he got it in April. So that would be May, June, July, August, September, October, November. Jesus, seven months after a hip replacement? Fuck. Ugh, that's quick, man. Um, <laughs> ask the New York State Athletic Commission. He would have had... I, I'm assuming all that had to be disclosed. Um Thoughts on Facebook's rebranding as the metaverse? Yeah, this is where technology is probably going to leave me, where people have lives online, which we already do, but you know, in a very pronounced way, where in fact the balance of your life could be digital and the imbalance could be the the, the literal or physical. Uh, Facebook is going to die, as all social media channels eventually do, and they're trying to lean into the future. I, be, beyond that, I don't have much to say. Um, I haven't updated my own Facebook in weeks. You know, it's it's a it's a dying service, to be quite candid. It's nice for me. It's like, oh, the people I went to college with, I can still sort of see what they're up to. But 
beyond that, it has almost no value. I, again, and again, I know these are these are bigger questions, certainly that I'm giving it any treatment. But from my personal level of interest, it's um, it's 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 low. Uh, Luke, do you see the champions slash contenders of one? How would they fare against their respective divisions in the UFC? Uh, they would fare well. I'm not sure how you any fighters from one that stand out to you. Yeah. Um, what was his face? Uh, let's see. There's a few, obviously, that they've got some interesting things going on. Uh, Christian Lee is interesting to me. He stands out to me. Um, obviously, I know he lost in September, but I still think quite highly of him. He's very good. There's some other ones, obviously, as well, but Christian Lee, I think, has a ton of potential. Have you ever been asked or done analysis on a specific fighter to help them improve? Yes, I have been asked that. I have been asked that. Did I hear Fernand Lopez on the MMA Hour? Thoughts on his comments on Francis? I did not. I did not. Let's see. <laughs> so you threw a little jab at Tim Pool on Twitter. Would you ever go on his show and demolish some of his crazy views? I'm not super familiar with the views of Tim Pool. I don't pay a ton of attention to him. But then, you know, he had a terrible bout with COVID. And I just, you know, I, obviously, listen, if he gets better, that's the that's the only really story that matters. That's the only story. But it's a, that the most important thing is that he got better. Great. Yeah, okay, I'm not in any way wishing sickness upon him, but you know, he goes on this like extended explanation of what happened to him. And you know, I just don't fucking understand. I don't understand how people think uh risking sometimes serious risking death and then sometimes serious complications with COVID at a bare minimum super unpleasant symptoms. Uh, is just better and a more scalable solution than just dumping chemicals in that you don't know they even work still. And by the way, there was a major withtraction. The jury's still out on ivermectin, but there was a major withtraction of a paper that said ivermectin was helpful in uh, uh, combating COVID symptoms and certainly treating COVID And because um, their fucking math was wrong. Like, badly. The whole thing had to be... It was utterly worthless numbers. Um, extending one, the numerator, not the denominator. It's it was really what they did, uh, in, in, in to explain that in short order. And it's like, dude, <laughs> if you got better in the end, I guess that's what matters, right? But you like the idea that like I'm gonna wait till I get sick, and some for some of them get like super fucking sick, uh, dump chemicals. You don't even know if they work. Like that's all better and more scalable than preventative medicine that's been distributed to over half of walking humanity you know i mean <laughs> what the fuck are we doing please for the love of god just think rationally about what we are saying waiting to get sick dumping chemicals in that may not even work and you may have horrible symptoms some of you may won't most of you won't some of you are going to have terrible fucking symptoms spread it much more readily and that's better. It's just, I don't know I don't know how people can think and it's scalable. Like that's this is a scalable solution at population levels, right? We can just do this in Canada. 
we can do this in the state of Texas. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You quite obviously cannot. <laughs> Certainly not as a, an improved system. Jesus Christ. So, you know, I'm not mad at the guy. If he got better, great. But, I like, can we reflect on this episode a little bit more thoroughly, maybe? There's a lot of questions here that don't have thumbs up, so I'm going to skip them. I'll come back to them if I have to. Oh, Lord. All right. Um, this is a long one. Let me ask. Let me answer an MMA question to like as a cleanser, a palate cleanser. Uh, if Connor offers you a drink of proper twelve, do you take the shot or take the shot? <laughs> I would take the shot. I've had proper twelve. It's it's party whiskey, right? That's what it is. It's party whiskey. You're not drinking, you know, the nicest one you can drink. Um, at the club. Well, I mean, at the club, I guess you might be, but. You know, if you're just trying to sip, like, if you really are trying to enjoy, like, a really nice whiskey, you know, you, you can't do that if you're dancing to LMFAO at, with, with fucking sparklers in your Grey Goose. Like, that's just not really the place to do it. So if you're just partying, uh, you know, and if you got the money to spend what you want, but, like, it's party whiskey, bro. I've, all, I've, I've said it a million times. Like, here's my review of Proper 12, because I've had it a few times. If you were at a party and you were running low on booze and someone showed up with proper 12, you'd be, you'd be pumped. You'd be pumped. You'd be like, all right, sweet. You know, because it's not your first choice. It's not the one you're going to go to make the nicest cocktails. But you want to keep that party moving and a friend shows up with a lifeline like that. It's plenty good. It's plenty good. That's, that's, that's proper 12. That's about the nicest thing I can say about it, which I feel like is a pretty nice thing to say. It's a, it keeps the party. It's party whiskey. It's, it's what you do. Um, so there you go. I'm not going to say a whole lot on Aaron Rodgers other than just like one or two things. But this person says, um, in my opinion, I was okay with his reasoning at the beginning. But then the more he talked, the worse it got. He's allergic to an ingredient in the mRNA vaccines. He talked about Johnson & Johnson, blah, blah, blah. Where he lost me he started talking about he consulted with the medical field people and came up with some 500-page report and then took Joe Rogan COVID cocktail and wanted to pass as a vaccinated player. He talked about infertility from the vaccine, blah, 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 blah. And then mentioned MLK. No mention of actual doctors. Then yesterday, Joe's drug that did him wonder seemed to have lied on the results. I don't know what that means exactly. Are you talking about the ivermectin? Whatever. I would much rather hear your thoughts on this since Ruggs is really about the stupidity and a sad case. You guys see this? The fucking Oakland Raider who killed people accidentally, but he fucking did it. Um, since the NFL has a car service given to all players as part of the NFLPA, the only thing there's to say, I mean, I don't even, I don't take the Aaron Rodgers thing super seriously. I really don't. That shit was so embarrassing for him, man. I was like, dude, what in the fuck are you doing up here on this show saying the shit you're saying? You're better than this, man. Dude, he want, this is basically all you need to understand about it. What he wanted to present his case as was, the rational deduction of either unappealing or unavailable circumstances to come to the accrued rational conclusion. I am only left with this particular way in which I handled it, or at a bare minimum, if I'm not only left with this, um, I am perfectly within my rational faculties to suggest that this is an effective course of action, right? He was making it 
about a rationally deductive process. I'm, I have started neutral, and I am going to work my way down to this position in a way that can, I'm, I'm giving you transparency about my reasoning and about the facts of the case. This is, I have come to the accumulated scientific wisdom of this rationally deduced case, when in fact, all he ever did in the entire thing was give his political worldview. That's it. That's it. That's all he did. That was his political worldview disguised as a rationally deductive process by which he came to a neutral conclusion. And when you understand that's what he did, you don't... And you're like, well, how do you know that? I mean, guys... There is a perfectly good space, and in fact, not merely perfectly good, but I would argue critical, deeply important for social function and, and frankly, cohesion. To have a debate over the limits of vaccine, um, certainly effectiveness, but more than that, to what extent are they compulsory? Uh, in the workplace, in broader society, to what extent can governments mandate it? To what extent can they not? What are the costs? What are the benefits? That to me seems like an incredibly important debate where you would want as much input from various communities as possible. Not really the ones that are clear-cut cases either way, but especially the ones in the middle. We have to have a clear sense of what the costs and what the harms are with any kind of policy that uh, significant in terms of its scope as well as its effect on... Um, potential civil liberty infringements. Like I'm the values debate over the mandating of vaccines or the requiring of them for various, again, uh, avenues of social life, uh, I think is a hugely important debate. And I want to hear from so many different people on that. And I mean that quite sincerely. Not every case is going to be um, equally valid, right? We all realize that there's going to be certain occupations where some of that mandating is going to be, um, even if you don't agree, certainly a little bit more understandable than other cases, right? So there's a lot, it's a very complicated debate and it doesn't have one beginning or one end. But I think, and I mean this sincerely, so many Americans of so, and worldwide, so many different people, so many different backgrounds are right to have questions about vaccine passports, mandates, and the like. But what they don't seem to understand, <laughs> depending on where I suppose you get your information, they keep thinking that there is... Um, far more scientific uncertainty about these matters than there actually is. In order to rationally get to the, excuse me, in order to get to the place, the worldview that Aaron Rodgers ultimately espoused, the only way you can do that, the only way you can do that is by willfully ignoring the inconvenient amount of evidence to the contrary. Folks, the scientific case, either for the protective properties or the treatment properties or any concerns he has about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or everything else, that case can never be as strong. Oh, what about natural immunity? I'll get to that in a second. It can never be as strong as the case for the, the, the uh, existing preventative medication that we have. It's not up for debate. I know some of you think it's up for debate. It's not up for debate. Now... In the sense of uh, what I think has been true is, for example, the people who are reflexively poking holes in the case that comes from 
broader scientific consensus, right? Like how effective are masks? What are the best ways to implement them? Those are perfectly fine inquiries. Um, when does vaccine effectiveness wane? Again, the, the question about the debates uh, around uh, mandates and everything else. These are perfectly reasonable inquiries. And in fact, we need them. We need people to poke holes in how effective masks are. We need people to help us understand the limits of potentially lockdowns. We need people to, uh, in good faith, figure out exactly when effectiveness of these vaccines wane and what the best course of action is and are they safe and blah, blah, blah. Those are all, uh, in that sense, all, of course, always going to be up for debate. There never will be ultimately a consensus. But what I mean to say is, to the extent that we have any evidence for what our best practices are, it's the fucking opposite of what he's talking about. The evidentiary case in its totality of what he's pres- of what he prescribed either for himself or more broadly for society, the weight of that evidence is a pimple on the ass of the weight of the evidence he ignored. And so you just have to rationally ask yourself, why would you ignore all of this evidence? By the way, this claim that like he's allergic to one of the substances in the mRNA vaccines, color me deeply fucking skeptical of that claim, right? Because then when you present yourself as immunized to the, you're not, you're not immunized to shit, Bubba. Like, you know, these totally um, sleight of hand tricks that, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, mislead anyone. Okay, you are. We can just put that. That's fine because, you know, you were fearing the consequences, whatever. If you broadly ignore the mountain of evidence on uh, not, not their perfection, not their, their, their failures are all real. But if you, if you broadly ignore all of the prevailing worldwide evidentiary-based medical consensus, if you ignore that to get to your worldview, your worldview is shit. It is not to be taken seriously. And so when he spouts about like all of these, this way I keep telling you guys to go take the Pepsi challenge. Dude, don't believe me. Please, by all means, take nothing I say here for granted. Double, triple, quadruple check it all. I welcome it because even if I'm wrong, you'll get better information. I'm okay with it. Talk to your doctor. What does your doctor say? Your doctor is going to tell you, absent the most minimal of circumstances, uh, to get the fucking vaccine. You know, he said, I presented this larger case to the NFL's medical advisory board, and they looked at me like I was a quack. Yeah, I bet they fucking did, Aaron. Do you know why? They keep wanting this case. Like, oh, we can poke holes in every piece of public health. We can, we can show that because masks have certain limits, we can do away with them. That because lockdowns have certain limits, and by the way, those are serious ones, but we can all together do away with them. That vaccines have certain limits, we can do away with them, blah, 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 blah. And then you come to find out, you see this report from the Texas Tribune? They actually went back and looked at the deaths of folks and their vaccination records and, and um, who was vaccinated, who was not in the state of Texas. And what was it? Let me pull up the number just so I don't get this wrong. This came to us from, um, hold on, let me pull this up for you. I want to make sure. I saw this this morning. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Okay. COVID-19 cases and deaths by vaccination status. From mid-January to October, this is the state of Texas, unvaccinated people made up the vast majority of reported COVID-19 cases and deaths. For cases, they made up 85%, partially vaccinated 12, and fully is a sort of a little small sliver. I can't see it. Deaths, 85%, uh, 7%, 
uh, for partially and then 8% for fully. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. You're asking, well, how did they do it? They did it. Uh, let's see. Where is their methodology? I saw here just a second ago. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Yeah, the recent Texas Coronavirus Antibody Response Survey commissioned by the State Health Department. So this came from the government in partnership with the University of Texas system estimated that about 75% of Texans, roughly 22 million people, likely have some level of protection against the virus, either by natural immunity from being infected or through vaccination, uh, which is great to see, except where is that? Da -da 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 -da. Uh, the state's largest hospital districts and counties have reported that at least 90% of the hospitalized Texans with the virus were unvaccinated. And here is the... Oh, here were the death numbers. This was the one that got me. Uh, hold on just a second. Listen to this. So this is the state of Texas. Let me pull this up here. Ready? Homicides from that same period. Uh, through, June, sorry, through June 1st, 2021. Homicides, about 1,700. Drug overdose, about 3,000. Firearm deaths, about 3,500. 3, Accidents, about 10,700. COVID deaths in that same time period, 21,000. That means the COVID deaths were greater than homicide, drug overdose, firearm deaths, and accidents combined. Fucking combined. What Aaron Rodgers said on the Pat McAfee show was merely a political screed disguised as scientifically accrued wisdom from the process of deduction. You have to ignore or listen to fucking Alex Berenson, <laughs> the wrongest guy on this whole issue from day one. Literally, information he discussed on Joe Rogan's show, totally fucking wrong about the vaccinated deaths in, in uh, England. Had the wrong math again. A fucking again. You have to ignore reality to get to where Aaron Rodgers is at. It's the end of it. It's the end of it. So if we want to have debates, which I think are important and helpful about the limits of what kind of medicine effectively the government can impose, to let's have it because that's an important debate we have to get right. Fair, fine, no problem. Um, and again, there's going to be medically a small window of folks who aren't eligible to get treated. Fine, no problem. The rest of you Bamas, you're not fooling anybody anymore. It just doesn't work that way. All right, let's move on. I got to skip this veganism one, otherwise you guys are probably going to riot, right? Colby apparently doesn't cut much weight to make 170. Do you think he should try to fight at 155? And how do you think he does against the best in the division? I don't know if he, I've seen him in person. I don't know if he can make 155. I think that would badly affect his motor. I do think if there was a 165 division, he might be the king of it. I will say that. What's your take on the tragedies from the Astro World Music Festival? I have not paid candidly too much attention. I know it sounds like, oh, what are you watching? I saw the news. It seems terrible. It seems like they cut a lot of corners. I don't want to get out in front of my skis about something I've not looked into whatsoever. Uh, any crazy personal stories from concerts? I will tell you that the HF Festival in 2000 had a mosh pit, and I can believe what happened. Again, I don't know much about what happened in its totality and where everything went wrong, 
But I will say I was watching I so HF Festival. So there was a radio station here in the area for a long time. It was WHFS, and they were the main competitor to DC one hundred and one. You might know DC one hundred and one. Most of you probably won't, but if if that is at all familiar with you, for you, um, Howard Stern was a was a disc jockey for a time at DC one hundred and one. This was back in the days when radio stations were a big deal. And um, HF Festival or HFS was their competitor, and HF Festival was a concert series they would put on every year, and they would have good ass bands. In 2000, they had Deftones, Cypress Hill, I think like Slipknot, um, Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine. Like it was a good show. I'll never forget during the Cypress Hill portion of the concert, there were a, a few people passed out. I don't know what it was hot, but I don't I don't quite remember that being the issue. Anyway, there was there were some people passed out, and there were people moshing on top of them, and one of them was a girl. Like, couldn't have been more than, had to be less than eighteen, and people were just stomping on her, like literally stomping on a unconscious person. So, the only time I've never done this at a concert before, but I've never seen shit like that before. Like, dude, that's you know, B- BC never wants to go to like the Dying Fetus show or whatever, and I'm like, dude. Yeah, there's a mosh pit at the Dying Feeder show, obviously, but like the the nastiest stuff I've ever seen, like the meanest stuff I've ever seen, was not at those kinds of metal shows. At least not in my experience. So I pushed everyone away and I scooped her up and uh, I, I was with a friend and he helped clear like the path. And then I went and took her to the uh, the nurses station. Um, and I actually <laughs> I actually saw her later. I guess she, what happened was she had had like no water and had passed out. And so they gave her an IV, but she was more or less okay. And I asked her, like, the people were stomping on her. Do you have, like, a headache? She's like, no, I feel fine. I was like, maybe she was an idiot. I don't know. But um, I saw her later, and she wasn't drinking, thank God, but she was fine. Uh, but I guess she had been drinking, passed out. And, but people were, like, legit just treating her like grass. I, I was – civilization is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior. We – I am very much of the belief that people will resort to the Lord of the Flies, if not in totality, certainly in brief moments like that. When previewing fights, you like to reference a fighter's um, significant strikes landed and absorbed per minute, takedown percent. Take down defense percentage, among others, similar to baseball batting average. Do you think that any of these stats that are commonly used aren't great indicators of anything? And do you expect more statistics to be involved in MMA in the next couple of years, not the shitty PFL ones? I'm glad you asked. So here's the way I think. The stats are not the ultimate arbiter, essentially, of anything. What they are is a tool to aid our greater understanding. They are merely one part of it. And even then, you need to be careful with it. You can look at someone's takedown percentage, and it can look quite low, but an individual matchup may not may not in any way reflect the reality of that. Or conversely, you guys have seen it before, where the numbers sometimes tend to either be misleading or otherwise invaluable. It is not the case that every stat with every fighter in every fight is altogether valuable. Many times it's a wash. Many times it's the sample size is too small. We're talking about small sample sizes anyway. So there could be a case where, like, you've got two UFC fights, and you both have first round knock. You have a, a first round knockout in both one of those, you know, fights. You're going to have sick numbers, but like we haven't even seen you tested yet. So, so no doubt about it, there are absolute limits to the way it should be treated. You should be very um, conscious of that. But I've tried to get a better understanding of when I think stats are relevant in which kind of matchups 
and which fighters' careers with their styles. Like somebody like Max, who has so much volume. In fact, he might become the first UFC fighter to see Mike Bond reported some MMA junkie to cross uh, um, 3,000 total strikes landed. Right at that point, you really can now look at the numbers and say, what kind of tendencies show up, dude? MMA, and if you watched my technical difficulties videos at all. What you have begun to combat sports, what you have begun to realize is all of these fights, especially if they go long, three, four, you know, or a boxing fight, nine, 10, 11 rounds, everything is patterns. Everything is patterns. Fighting is patterns. And sometimes the patterns loop. Sometimes the patterns don't. Sometimes there are interesting ways in which they all line up, but it's, it's patterns. It is patterns about what works, what doesn't, and then revisiting it until you reach an ultimate conclusion, either the, at the end of the round or the bout, or your opponent is incapacitated. And these, these, these loops appear over and over and over and over and over again, especially among two high-level fighters, who the difference between them can be minimal, and any kind of crack in the armor can be widely exploited, or certainly something that can be you know uh, gone back to, or whatever the, the, the various complexion of the of the interaction between them well then it can become super valuable to see some details and it's also valuable sometimes for not ranking fighters crudely you know oh most significant strikes must mean you're the best well obviously if you have like what max has you're pretty good but no not necessarily the case that the most significant strikes or something else is going to be the best um but you know when you have Something like what Kamar Usman did to Rafael Dos Anjos, where he had 10 takedowns and he had landed over 100 significant strikes. You have these benchmarks of achievement that begin to reveal themselves that, that you can then use to then rank fighters in a division or in an era or, or in a particular kind of application against a singular opponent or, or anything. That's when they become really quite valuable. They help us sort things. They help us identify some of these broader tendencies. And then we have to make some other conclusions about information we have or don't or, or whatever the case. So it's not like they're the final arbiter, but they, are, they, they can be, I should say. They can be quite helpful, hugely helpful. And to me, I find them very helpful. Just even sometimes I'll use them in a reverse kind of way, not to make an argument, but sometimes you know, it's hard to keep an understanding and then the, you know, everyone's fight style indexed in your brain. I'll go and I'll compare their numbers before a main event. Max and Yair, you know, I don't know how valuable that is. I haven't even looked at it just yet. I'll do that tonight before tomorrow's show. But, um, and I'll use those numbers as a way to like, oh, right, here are some of their disparities. And then I'll go back and I'll be like, let's say if someone has a takedown vulnerability. If someone has a takedown vulnerability, I'll go and find takedowns that they suffered relatively recently. I'll go back in their fights on Fight Pass and then I'll begin to compare the data. So I'll, I'll let the data show me the disparities, and then from the disparities, I'll f identify them on the tape, and then I'll use that together to typically come up with a broader conclusion. But even that, can get, you can get those wrong, right? I mean, understand, um, you know, I it, I was surprised at the ease with which Glover got the takedowns on Jan Blachowicz. I thought that the tape had shown more recently he had gotten better about that, but that was not something that I think is supportable by the evidence after the fact. So you have to be careful about it. It's not... None of this stuff is foolproof, but I would say in general, over time, when you get a better eyeball for what stats matter, which ones don't, and which contexts, uh, over time, it can really uh, aid and facilitate your understanding of the game. And what I would also say is, dude, I appreciate, I, I, and I mean this sincerely, dude, PFL for a long time, I wasn't sure if they were coming or going. And now it appears like they're doing pretty well, and um, I'm glad to see that. Like, I love their product. I love what they're doing. I think they're great. And I and I and I and I mean this generally. Like, they're we're, we're better off in an MMA where they're winning. Truly, I mean that.
but those fucking numbers that they go to and that they just make up that have no relevancy whatsoever for any kind of mathematical computation that would matter. I appreciate the attempt at innovation. I think that their general posture towards that, you know, calling it the smart cage, while I think that's also ridiculous, I, I at least I at least they're trying. You know, they're trying. They're trying to think about ways to advance this process. But that's a case where you're just you're they're just making up it's just alchemy over there, you know. Hey, we've got nickel and silver. Can we make gold? No. No, you can't. Uh, opinion on body hardening techniques. Many fighters use them, from, but from what I have read, the jury is very much still out on whether or not it's a good idea or a relic of pre-science and peer-reviewed training. I uh, do not know much about the research around this. Some body hardening seems occupationally relevant, and some just seems like, hey, let's just fucking hard spar to hard spar. I'll give you an example of one that, again, I don't know if this is true, but occupationally seems like a relevant thing you would want to do. The folks in Thailand who are Thai boxers who, through different methods, either rolling stuff up and down their shins, try and deaden the nerves there uh, as a means to both defend and attack. Um, that seems to me like something that could be valuable. But, you know, and also, um, you know, working on your core with the medicine ball. And like you saw Tommy Fury and his brother, um, um, uh, Tyson Fury, excuse me, he was doing the training with a medicine ball. That seems to me like to have some value, although that's mostly like because you're keeping like an isometric hold. So you're strengthening the abs, but you're also like hardening the skin a little bit. You're sort of, or at a bare minimum, getting your body used to what it means to take punishment this way. I think those things could be valuable, but um, I don't know about like, you know, punching sand. Does that really help your hands? Certainly you can get calluses from lifting or from working them, but I don't know what kind of value that would confer since you have to keep your hands closed by and large in combat sports. So those issues around the hands or anything other than the skin, you know, again, the tie thing with the uh, shins seems normal. But other than that, um, especially when it comes to like head trauma, that's what I'm like, what are we doing? Do you think to some degree, though this is an oversimplification, if Kamaru fought Israel, it would sort of be like if GSP and Silva, the fight we never got to see. You know, I've never thought of it that way. But that's a pretty smart observation, I would say. Uh, I have to think about that more. And yes, you're right, that is an oversimplification. Um, yeah, I don't think that's far from the truth. GSP, to me, had a sharper jab. Uh, but... And obviously Israel is very different than, than than Anderson Silva, but yeah, that's that's an interesting comparison. That's a smart one. That's a good one on your on your part. Um, can you point to any current fighter style and say that's the style to beat Makachev? No, style wise, no. I don't know if anyone. No. There's no style that I see in the lightweight division. I'm like, oh, that's the style to beat Makachev. He's way too well-rounded. You would need someone with, like, incredible down blocking and uh, a phenomenal jab. Uh, 
I think that would give him a shitload of problems. But like, does that person even exist at 155? I'm not sure that they do. What are the possibilities that John Jones has actually been serving a USADA suspension the entire time? Given the confidentiality agreement they have with the fighters and Dana's continual dismissal of any questions Jones-related, seems probable to me. Am I way out of line on thinking? Well, I've definitely seen a few cases. You guys have seen it too, where it's like, oh, so-and-so was out for two years, huh? Now, in some cases, they really were just out for two years, right? Um, and it could, because it could be like, oh, they were scheduled to fight and they got injured and who knows. But, you know, two years they're out. But then there's some people you just don't hear anything about. You're like, where the fuck have they been? Um, I don't think that's his case because Dana has also said, like, when he's ready to fight and he wants to come back, we can give him a fight any time. Um, of course, what could he say? Because he wouldn't be allowed to speak about it either. It is possible it is possible, but I think it's more likely um, not the case. Also, I tend to think that would get out. John's probably got a lot of enemies and people who don't like him. I would imagine something like that might leak. I'll do one more. Uh, I love this question. Have you seen Derek from More Plates, More Dates? Uh, I know him well. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I've seen many of his videos. His one-hour natty or not breakdown on Kamaru Usman. Basically, he concludes that there is a very high likelihood that Usman has been on significant levels of HGH and, this person writes, at the very least, microdosed levels of EPO. Not to discredit any of his accomplishments with the UFC, but would his legacy as the welterweight goat be tarnished if it were revealed that these allegations were true? Not to me. I don't... The, you know, I, this is weird. This is like everyone is swimming in the Ganges River and then some people are claiming that they didn't get dirty. It's I, I don't... It's too hard to tell at this point. You know, how do you even go back to the pre-USADA era and weigh any of that you're just going to give Hughes and GSP the benefit of the doubt you'll be like and, and maybe you want to maybe that's maybe they did absolutely nothing wrong but I'm saying like why are we excluding them from the conversation because they're we think they're people of high moral character well um certainly Matt Hughes's situation is a difficult one and, and I don't wish any trouble upon him but if you read his biography you know he's a bit of a bully in the gym but either way this is not relevant point being is you know they're not entitled to any more uh, of a break in the skepticism than anybody else. And we're talking about two of the best ever to do it. Again, I'm not in any way concluding that they did. I don't have any evidence to suggest it. But like, people want to be like, okay, well, we can exclude the people that we like, and then we can count everybody else. And it's like, how do you do that? And I don't think that uh, there's plenty of ways to currently cheat now. And the ones who at the, are at the higher levels who have more money are at a much better uh, capability of doing it. And I'm sure it exists right now in fights that whether it's this one or any other one. Like, I, again, I have no evidence that Kamaru Usman does. I, these, these ethical dilemmas don't bother me the way it bothers um, some of you. I gather that, listen, I understand that if you have rules, people need to obey them. I understand that. I get it. Okay. 
Um, my solution is not to just let people do it with people who don't want to do it. That's not the way that uh, I think the the problem gets resolved. But I also have sort of come to this conclusion, like we have this really difficult problem where um, you can limit it to some extent, but the the people that are most likely to use and benefit are at this stage going to be the most important ones. Um, and I don't know how you police that without going to, tr I mean, well over beyond draconian methods. And so you have like a situation where the rich get richer, basically, um, by virtue of they can afford the kinds of treatment and protocol and chemi chemistry that gives them that kind of an advantage that is either undetectable and valuable and everything else in between or proprietary in certain cases. So, you know, do, again, do I have any evidence that Camaro has done anything? I have zero. And again, I, Derek is doing a, a, a case about his opinion and his opinion is that is a very high likelihood. He, he could be right. I, I don't hand ring or I think it is, I'll just state this and I'll move along because I, you know, I, I go over these a, a fair bit, but I, I don't think we have enlightened policy around drugs and sports. I don't think we have enlightened policy on drugs in broader society, but that is slowly beginning to change with marijuana legalization. Again, I told you guys at the beginning of this, you're seeing not just veterans, of course, but there was an article today about veterans who are exploring the contours and the benefits and the realities of psychedelic treatment. Like our relationship to drugs and society more broadly is is only expanding um, and only is growing to be, it's not, what we, we realize with all of these substances, they carry a potential significant risk and consequences, but the answer is not the abolition of them, it is the nimble weaving of them into our society. And so we don't have nimble weaving. What we have now is uh, the abolition basically of well, at least the attempted abolition anyway, of drugs in totality rather than an enlightened policy um, that caters to the various communities and the various realities, which is harder to come by, but doable. All right, let's check out your questions as I get to them here. Let me pull this up. By the way, I there's a decent chance that I will do a, um, a live show this weekend, a live post-fight show for uh, MK. I was going to do one here, but I don't think I can. But, um, all right, let's do this. Okay. Here we go. All right. Let's get to the paid question. Jesus, there's a fuck ton of these. All right. Uh, I grew up outside Baltimore, this person writes, and I love it, but I recently moved closer to D.C. Any tips for getting to know the city? D.C. feels slightly aloof. D.C. is slightly aloof relative to Baltimore. People are friendlier in Baltimore. Um, the simplest way to get into the, to better understand D.C. is you got to join some kind of club or organization. Dude, for any interest at any age level, there is something here. Oh, I like to go bike riding at night. You got a group. Oh, I like to go fucking roller skating with... <laughs> other fat people or whatever there's that there's always some kind of social group that caters to your interest to join just try one if it doesn't work it doesn't work you don't have to go back um and i think that will begin to you'll begin to see all the various communities and the way in which they interact 
Oh, listen to this. Luke, I asked a year ago for your advice on transitioning from AD, active duty, I think he means. Well, I listened, and I am starting at Penn State in the spring. What's up, player? Thanks and congrats on MK success. Happy Veterans Day. Congratulations to you. That is fucking great. Do you agree with, and can you explain the sentiment that Colby would be champ if Usman wasn't there? Everyone he's fought since Kim was 34 plus and declining. Maybe that's my ignorance. I'm new to MMA. He hasn't fought one current top 15. I agree that there is some due diligence in terms of where we actually know his ability to be. Clearly, he's a tough matchup for Usman, but that doesn't mean he's going to have the same success with contenders, believe it or not. Still, the way in which he was able to fight and do well against Usman should be taken as evidence that he is probably quite competitive with the top 15. But I, I agree. I agree that like getting some of those under his belt at this point is pretty important. Can you give a quick shout out to the boys at Chang's? I know they love it. I got to tell you, some of you guys, you know, y'all, listen, the PF Chang's thing is kind of funny, I have to admit, but I love Brendan. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hate on him, but yes, shots. By the way, I've to a literal PF Chang's, you know, I've literally never been. I have no idea if they're any good or not, uh, which of course is not the point of this, but hi, PF Chang's boys. I know, I, you know, y'all are having fun. I see it. I'm not here to hate on it. All right. Can you give your thoughts on the Henry Rugg situation, how it can relate to situations like the John Jones? Well, in fairness to John, to my knowledge, he's not done anything even fucking remotely as bad as the Henry Rugg situation. Dude, have did you guys followed this fucking this story is unbelievable. Dude, it is the war it, there's just no winner here. I mean not that they're supposed to be, but I mean like it's just it's just it's just loss everywhere. This dude was going 150 something. I think crashed at like near 130 that when the airbags deployed. Um, person in his car got super fucked up, killed a person in the other car who I think was trapped in there, and then I think burned to death or at a bare minimum related to the accident died. Uh, so they took his ass to the hospital after the crash and then sent him right to fucking jail. Raiders released him, dude. That was a residential street he was doing that on, a neighborhood street, 150 plus. 150 plus. You just, it's unfucking believable the amount of negligence, like that you would have to do something. And I realize he probably is going to live the rest of his life with regret and sadness that will torment him. And I truly mean that. I don't, I don't really wish it on anybody, even him. You know, re- rehabilitation is supposed to be possible, but dude, you have, your life is over, um, more or less. He may get out at some point, you know, in 30 years or whatever the fuck. At that point, your whole athletic career is over. You can't get that person's life back. You, ha- you, God knows how it's going to fracture his existing relationships. You know, any money he have is is going to be gone by then. Like it's ju- it's a complete disaster. And the Raiders and the NFL have a car policy where he could have, you know, at a bare minimum he could have fucking Ubered. But even then, they could have gotten a ride with um, this car service. And he fucking drove on a residential street at a. You just can't. It's shocking, and I don't. I don't want to compare John's situation to that. I don't. That can get a little bit um, unfair. Is probably the right word. Still, what I would say is not relevant to rugs, but what I would say is with the Jones situation. I don't know what happened with the latest round of court. It was supposed to happen in October. I didn't hear anything. I guess there must have been some kind of continuance, or I, I don't know what happened, but. If something isn't done about what he's doing, 
either him internally or some kind of pressure externally. I'm not calling for him to go to jail. I'm saying if something doesn't have an effect where he more or less is doing the same kinds of things over time, uh, again, the Henry Rugg situation is like uniquely horrific, but that something truly regrettable will happen to John is mathematically inevitable. If Again, if he keeps up and something doesn't cause some kind of change. Um, just the reality. Do you think Dana is intentionally underselling Chimaev as a title contender just so he can feed Diaz to Chimaev on the way up? No. I think Dana, and I mean this sincerely, I think I, I understand. There's been a few times where he's really hyped people, and then it kind of blew up in his face and it never worked. And I think he kind of realized some prospects you think you can see coming a mile away, and sometimes you can't. Again, speaking of John Jones, you could see him coming a mile away once he got a couple of wins under his belt. Um. But in the interest of caution, I think he's probably just like, I don't want to be wrong about this guy. And then he ends up just like, what happens if he has a fight and someone lasts over a round and then he gasses? You know, again, I'm not saying that well, but what happens if that happens? He's going to look like an idiot. So I think he's just taking his time. Okay, before I read this question, I need to verify this is a real name because I know some of you fucks will just make shit up. Let's see. Okay, I don't know what about this name, so I'm going to skip it. Sorry, bro. Someone says volume's a bit low. Sorry, bro. What can Max do to get a TS in 145? How does he stack up at 155? 155, I don't know if he has the punching power for. Someone says, uh, random fact, Dylan Danis is 50% Armenian and 50% Honduran. Saludos desde Honduras, Alero. Uh, saludos. Um, yeah. If CKB and Whitman Jim joined forces while they are in a, the state, what could both gyms get out of each other? Probably some of the boxing technique that Whitman gets into. Whitman's very big on getting in and getting out at angles, about uh, never being out of position, always maintaining balance. You know, you add that with clever, they're more than just this, but you add that with clever feinting, where they're quite, quite good at, and their larger understanding of Muay Thai, you would have something quite formidable. Uh, even though Masvidal is out currently, is Masvidal's side being underplayed versus Edwards, given how they both fought Diaz? Masvidal may be too aggressive and violent while matching Edwards' fight IQ. No, I don't think that's how they look at it. Have you been following the Chicago Blackhawks sex assault scandal? No, Jesus Christ, there's a Blackhawks issue? Fucking hell. Someone says, you've said Islam versus Oliveira could be interesting. I think it's the least competitive fight for Islam in the top five based on Oliveira's willingness to play off his back in Islam's top control. Could be. Could be. Could be. Uh, Luke, was Rittenhouse justified in defending himself? Well, there's sort of two broader questions here, right? One is about the legality, about whether or not, according to the laws of the state in which it took place, and again, there might be a series of gun charges, but just on the, the, the issue of self-defense, did he or did he not? Well, the testimony of this past week shows that it is almost a guarantee he is going to be acquitted um, on the legal question about whether or not there was self-defense by virtue of cross-examination of the guy he shot and lived, 
who admitted that Rittenhouse didn't shoot until he uh, pointed at Rittenhouse first, which is probably going to meet that state's definition of self-defense. That's a different question from being a fucking idiot and pretending that you're going to be the antidote to what you perceive as societal vigilantism and then showing up with a fucking gun and getting people killed, however justified it might have been in the case of self-defense. And the moral question of that, I think he bears some responsibility for their death. On the legal question, he is almost certainly going to be acquitted. Do you listen to any rappers under 40? Yeah, I listen to DaBaby. I listen to, um, I don't know much about him, but a couple of his songs have appeared. A little bit of Joyner Lucas. I'm not going to say I'm a Joyner Lucas fan, but there's been a couple of tracks I've enjoyed. Um, there's been a few that have show up in my, they get recommended to me. Yeah, um, what's that fucking guy's name? Blue Cheese. I swear I'm addicted to Blue Cheese. That guy, he's all right. He was showing up in my, uh, in my algorithm yesterday. But do I listen? Most of the rappers I listen to are washed and old. So, <laughs> sorry, favorite rappers. Do you think Canelo will consider moving up to cruiserweight? I mean, come on, be serious. <laughs> most dependable. James, James Vick's chin. Pat Militis on January 6th. Tito, Huntington Beach counselor. Rockhold on a Latin American beach. I don't get that one. Joshua Fabia. What has Rockhold done on a Latin American beach that I'm not aware of? I don't know. I don't know what that one is. Uh, I'll come back to this one very quickly. Hold on. Fundamentally, why do most elite boxers and kickboxers not switch stances? A lot of them do, whereas most elite MMA fighters consistently do. Because switching stances for MMA, which has this really kind of modular, interwoven style of fighting, actually makes a lot of sense. Mastering a stance within a narrow universe, which is what boxing is, but a, but where specificity is. Understand something. People are like, oh, boxing training's easier. Right, well, then how come you fuckers can't win boxing fights against anyone halfway good? I mean, how many MMA fighters have you been like, boxing training ain't shit? And then they go out there and they get fucking slugged out, you know, quickly. Right, because they're not wrong. The boxing training, in terms of like the tax on your body and the how difficult it is, it actually is a lot easier. MMA training is hard as shit on the body. It's like CrossFit to a degree, right? Um, but, but. Inside that game, while it is narrower and the training is somewhat easier relative to injury load than MMA, the problem is the specificity and the very refinement of technique is at a premium where any drop-off in that could have catastrophic consequences. Truly, that's, that, is, that is the truth. Any disparity, even a minor one, could have catastrophic consequences. That's why these MMA fighters are like, this training is easy, like, this is much better. And then they go and fight some fucking scrub and it look like shit. Right? That's that's why. So, to answer the question, why do boxers not do it? Because it's a shitload harder to do. I don't know much about kickboxing, but in boxing, switching stances is very hard to do. Now, I'll say that with the caveat that the newer generation who are starting this earlier, um, you're seeing a little bit more stance switching. Either the kind that Dustin Poirier does, which I know he's an MMA fighter, but I mean like transitionally in little moments, Tyson Fury switches stances all the time. He doesn't stay in that, but he does switch stances out of the clinch break at times, right? That's, that's a big one for him. Or in the four corners, if I've trapped you in a ring post and you're exiting that way, he will, he will switch stance so that his lead hand catches you on the exit. So you see it from Tyson Fury. I would point to one more fighter, a uh, boxer that you guys should pay attention to. This guy, dude, this guy is a future pound for pound great. Like, he is so fucking good. Jerron Ennis. Uh, 
out of Philly. Shouts to the folks in Philly, dude. Jerron Ennis. They call him Boots. I remember that name. Jerron Ennis. He is going to hurt people. He is very, very, very good. Super good. He. I'm more excited about Jerron Ennis' future than I am any other boxer alive. Jerron Ennis is the shit, and he can switch stances all day long. And he's, what, 25 or something? I mean, he is a beast. So some of it is the culture that they don't want you to do. The other part of it is you need to be very gifted to pull off stance switching in boxing. Getting one stance right is hard enough. In MMA, you can you can forego a little specificity by virtue of volume. Like how many different kinds of attacks do you have? You don't have those same kinds of trade-offs in boxing. Specificity really quite matters. Uh, someone just wrote, his name is Freedom Issue. He wrote, these are not vaccines under legal definition. Okay, dude. Is Rose the strawweight goat? She might be, but it's so early. I, I really am cautious about, well, let's wait till she retires before we anoint her that. Or, you know, gets a little bit further along in her career. Thoughts on the ethics of veganism? I think they're largely right. I mean, some of these moral questions become quite complicated when, you know, to get like a Impossible Burger sent to you and the amount of manufacturing that's required and how carbon neutral or not it is to get to that point. Um, th- those are some some more difficult issues to assess. But, you know, like there was a case where they had uh, during the pandemic, uh, one of the top providers of pork, I don't think it was Purdue, um, or it could have been actually, although they're, they're more famous for chicken, but it was one of the major pork providers they had an excess amount of pork they could simply not uh, make use of during the pandemic. And so they had to slaughter all of them. And so they gassed them alive. We're talking hundreds of pigs. And these are things that pigs are as, uh, that has the, has the same kind of sort of reasoning skills as a small child and certainly emotionally complex lives. Um, you know, that kind of moral horror is impossible to justify utterly. I don't know what could be the argument for it, but there's sort of two major issues that that veganism is up against, all of these are beginning to change slowly. One is that if you talk to people and you actually explain the moral horrors that come from factory farming, they're pretty. Most people are pretty receptive to it. That doesn't mean they're going to stop eating pork overnight, but they're like, you know what? We don't want the we don't want the pigs or whatever to live under certain conditions. However, it's when that price point begins to hit them that they the, the equation changes. Like the way in which, like when when if chicken is cheap for them, if turkey is cheap, if pork is cheap and affordable, and they can feed their family on this, then those are just always going to be choices that most families make. And I think most people actually um, can understand that. And I think the best vegan advocates also understand that at a premium, the ability for a family to be fed uh, at a reasonable cost is just going to be so, so foundational to the way in which their lives are organized. That's going to be a hard thing to overwrite. You need to have options to really go vegan in this country, I would argue. Um so that's the first problem. The second problem is that, and this is changing, but the second problem is that like the the the, the kind of like meat substitutes that people are trying to introduce as a way to like, like reduce overall food consumption, they're just not very good. Like I've had the Impossible Burger. I like it. I think it's pretty good. I eat them on occasion. Um, but you know, again, super processed. It's not really good for you. It, I mean, a Whopper isn't good for you, whether it's a regular burger or it's a impossible one but either way you know it's not it's not like some kind of healthy alternative under any circumstance and again there could be some issues about like what goes into those things that ultimately is worse for the planet even though you know obviously uh, factory farming is bad for the moral horror it's bad for water quality nearby it's bad for air quality nearby it's bad for the workers 
it's really only good for the people who own these giant conglomerates. Uh, it's great for them. Factory farming is awesome for them, but for everyone else, it's pretty bad. Plus, for the consumers, you get cheap food, but it's just pumped with hormones. I mean, it's just terrible. But the good news is that um, the Good Food Institute sort of covers this kind of thing. If you guys want to know more, they have a newsletter at the Good Food Institute. You can check them out. They're big believers that, that, that these Impossible Burgers and whatnot um, they're going to get a lot better over time. They've only been around for about 10 years or so. They need time to get better. And the, they've already like gotten significantly better. And the other part is what you see, uh, Memphis Meat is one of these uh, groups that is growing meat in the lab. And I know a lot of folks like, I would never eat meat in the lab. I'm like, dude, I'd eat meat from a lab like that. You know, people like if I asked you like what went into the chicken you bought at your local grocery store, you know, you never saw that chicken live. You didn't see it get slaughtered. You didn't see it get wrapped. You didn't see any of that stuff. Um, what Memphis Meat is promising is that for everything it's sold, you can watch the entire chain of custody for how it gets made. It's at all times visible to you. And obviously, you know, the safety value of this is going to have to be tested by the government pretty extensively. That by itself is no 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 way to, to know. But I would also argue how many times have you seen E. coli or whatever kind of outbreaks with Tyson Foods and Purdue? I mean, these kinds of... They have to pump them full of antibiotics because there's constant disease outbreaks because the way they're living. It's a whole thing. Anyway, with time and improvement and a refinement of this process, I think it's eventually going to get to a place where we won't have to kill all these things. Because as long as meat is tasty and it is cheap, the arguments, you can make whatever argument you want about a pig shouldn't be gassed to death. But uh, that's just the way that it goes. Do fighters pour water in their corner pre-fight just to do a quick rinse on their feet, or is there something more to it? No. So the way that the mat works is if you pour water on it and then you rub your feet on it, it actually makes you stickier. They're trying to get tread under their feet. You know, you're, it's the opposite of like, you ever go to a basketball court and then you see people wipe the bottom of their shoes because they want traction to be able to stop and go different directions? It's kind of like them doing that. They're going there and putting water on their feet with the mat because the way the two interact is it actually gives you a little bit of... Uh, stick. That's what they want. All right, let me see if there's any more of these. Hold on. And then we'll call it a day here. How do you feel about the new phase of Marvels? Have you seen the Eternals? It's on the to-do list. I have not. Oh, Jesus. A big question about freedom. Can I table that one for a later time? Uh, oh, here we go, because I got two of these already. All right, Luke, I recall you mentioning on a recent live chat about how you believed many young men were radicalized on the internet recently. Could you please elaborate further on this? Well, let me be clear about something. I'm not one of these guys that's a big fan of, like, tech censorship. Um, and it was a huge... I, I will tell you. I will tell you. I will candidly tell you. Um, that Hunter Biden laptop story that was where Twitter, uh, it was called by critics as, uh, by the New York Post, planted by the Giuliani team, but um, about his laptop, it was sort of called Russian disinformation, and it turned out that essentially the nuts and bolts of the story was entirely true and now recently verified by a political reporter. And there's been zero, not zero, close to zero reckoning in the media or apologies or even acknowledgement of error about it. Okay, so... When people like that then use free speech channels, or at least I should say alternative channels of information to get a what they consider to be a more truthful message out, 
let's say, breaking points with Crystal and um, uh, Sagar and Jetty on YouTube, the hope is that they would not face tech censorship because what they're doing is an important work of checking mainstream media, right? So I want to be very clear. I am not pro-censorship. In fact, what I am is uh, trying to break up big tech, not to get rid of these companies, but so that uh, you know, Rumble is no competitor to YouTube. But the hope, I would actually... like what The way to solve these problems is not to censor the content. I'll get to that in just a second. From the alignment of private power, let's say Facebook... And then the government, which is you know, could pressure folks at Facebook to censor certain forms of content. Like that's that's actually quite bad. I'll get to your answer in just a second. What I'm actually for is an environment where alternatives can thrive to YouTube, to Twitter, to Facebook, to whatever. That's the world that I want. Is that um, no one platform is so dominant that limiting speech on it becomes a serious issue for how folks can challenge misinformation or real failures of the media or any other issue that they may need to address. So to answer your question, that does not, however, mean that I think that YouTube has no right to take off information that they deem uh, unfit for their platform. It's theirs to work with. They should be allowed to do that, of course, to the extent that that's transparent and done in a way where, um, you know, there's uh, the ability to challenge it in the event of unfairness. Uh, I don't know how you get around that. Like, I don't know how you can pass laws that m- you could make them keep content up. Um, I don't. I don't think that works either. So what you have to allow is just for the ability for these platforms to curate and moderate in the way that they best see fit, while providing alternatives to folks in the event that there is uh, perceived, you know, uh, either censorship or the closing off of avenues of speech. To answer your question. It is because they were reluctant to exercise some of that and the way that the algorithm works. There's extensive, extensive reporting. Let's talk YouTube for just a second. Where YouTube's algorithm was designed to pull you and then the way the algorithm worked was once it hooked you and got you to click on what's next, what what folks on the similar channel are watching, whatever, the algorithm was intentionally designed to go further and further into the issue where whatever you picked ultimately ended up in a place of outright or near radicalized ideas. And the algorithm worked in a way to push. This is not my imagination. This is this was YouTube admitted it. Uh, Facebook admitted it as well. Uh, but YouTube is the problem. I mean, we, we have we have these companies saying that they did this. This is a well-documented f- fact. And by the way, this can go in any direction that you pick. You find any rabbit hole, you follow it far enough, you're probably going to get to a pretty dark and bad place. Um, and there was just a ton of that. There was a ton of that that had happened generationally where it's important to have these other voices that can check media. At the same time, having zero check, zero curation by the platform itself, ultimately, and, and having a designed algorithm to deepen the interwovenness with an issue and a person's consumption habits, intentionally pulling them that way, intentionally recommending something increasingly inflammatory, increasingly agitated, um, they admitted that they did it. They admitted that they worked the algorithm that way. That can't be good. That can't be good. In fact, I don't think that it was. I think there's a lot of evidence to indicate um, a whole generation of, and again, just looking at who mostly watched those videos and um, what kind of behaviors were associated with it and what it all meant. It's, it's largely men and it's largely young men. And um, that can't be good. Some of those, some of those issues have been, uh, some of those policies have been changed. Things are not quite as bad as they used to be, but um, that's what I mean. YouTube knowingly 
uh, tiered their content and funneled it through the algorithm in a way that promoted the radicalization around any idea. They, they designed it that way. So keep that in mind. All right, fuckers. Let's do this. Thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. Tomorrow, my video. What can, what's a takedown in MMA? And is DC right? Hint. He's not. Although he does know what a takedown is. So I'll explain how DC can understand how takedown better than any of us and still be wrong. Uh, we'll get to that tomorrow. So be here tomorrow for that. And I got MK over on the MK channel. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, bitches, stay frosty.